There was a lot of unlearning that I had to do um, with the dominant narratives that were taught to me. Um, and um, it wasn't really into my adulthood and into kind of deep into my research, uh, into my artistic practice that I was able to kind of um, research and dive into these narratives in ways that, you know, suddenly, you know, suddenly it was a sort of awakening. Welcome to Creativity Pioneers a podcast by the Moleskin Foundation that aims to spark dialogues and reflections on how creativity is understood and talked about, showing us its use for positive personal and social transformation. I'm your host, Adam Asane, Moleskin Foundation CEO. Please subscribe now to our podcast on the platform of your choice and tune in for new episodes. I look forward to reading your thoughts and comments on our social media channels. This episode's guest is Heba Amin, a Cairo-born, Berlin-based, multimedia artist, researcher, and lecturer who looks at the convergence of politics, technology, and architecture. Her works have been covered by The New York Times, The Guardian, and CNN, to name just a few. She is the co-founder of the Black Athena Collective and current Field of Vision Fellow. Heba is one of the artists behind the subversive graffiti action on the set of the television series Homeland, which received worldwide media attention. If you haven't seen it, please check it out. It's quite awesome. Today, she talks about the artist's role in society, the ambivalent nature of technology, and her quest for personal and social transformation through art. And she does that from the angle of three keywords, relearning, intervention, and subversion. Her unique experience and sensitivity makes her a true creative pioneer. Enjoy. Hey, but good to see you. How are you? <laughs> nice to see you too. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. So, um, as you know, with this podcast, um, we use it to kind of explore the boundaries of this idea of creativity for social change. This is something that that is within our mission as Moleskin Foundation, uh, but we we still don't know fully. What that, what that means. So we use these, those moments to kind of have, uh, again, you know, uh, potential exploration, um, you know, and wondering around uh, those concepts. And to, as a compass, you know, to our concepts, we use words. And so we always ask to our guests to think about three words that comes to mind when you think about this idea of creativity for social change. So if I ask you, what would be those three words? I believe my three words were, and now you're putting me on the spot because I can't even remember. I believe my three words were um, relearning, um, intervention, and subversion. Is that correct? Almost. Yeah, I'm missing one. No, this is subversion intervention, absolutely. And yeah. I found interesting because you had when we when we chat before you had um unlearning and relearning and you choose uh -huh. the word uh -huh. yeah i mean I, actually you're right those are two different things unlearning and relearning um and a topic that's that's really kind of uh, at the forefront of a lot of art discourse right now mm. um but yeah and subversion and intervention also somehow go together um I don't know, I my third one. 
You like no, that's third subversion, intervention, and learning. Okay. okay. Well, you you say another one at a time that it was uh, strategy. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the whole point of choosing those those words is um, that we're kind of really at a moment of reflecting on <laughs> what does it mean to be an artist right now in this crisis moment during this pandemic. I think um, when we first, you know, several months ago at the start of the year when um, we were all quarantining and we had the kind of initial shutdown, um, I think so many artists were suddenly questioning what's the point of, of what we do today and especially in this context of crisis. Um, and, you know, what is, uh, what is the point of exhibition making? What is the point of, um, you know, the cultural work that we do? Um, and so I think it was just really a moment to kind of rethink these, these structures at this time. Um, and I know that that's something that kind of, you know, I sat with for quite some time and really thought about because I think everything was suddenly put into question um, about, um, you know, the work that we create, the lifestyles that we live, the who is it that we're working with, who are the people that we're reaching, what is the relevance of what we're doing, is it urgent enough at this crisis moment? Um, and so I think those, those words really kind of speak to this idea of there seems to be a consensus that we need to do things differently. And, um, and I'm kind of curious, you know, at the end of this, if we do see the end of this, if in fact we take that as a learning opportunity to restructure these, um, you know, these systems that we've built up, um, uh, not just kind of a general societal level, but, um, but even the responsibility that we have as cultural workers and as artists and, and, you know, really thinking about, you know, impact, I mean, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, what role our work plays in all of that. Mm -hmm. But I found it interesting that you went straight to this idea of systems and, and to, and in this moment where the concept of <clears throat> usefulness in general, like is, is coming up in a, in an interesting way, what constitutes something that is, that is useful and that is not useful in a moment, in a moment of crisis. So, I guess my question, it's, it's a very basic and broad one. You know, you're an artist, you do art, you know, but what's the point of it all in this moment, even almost to a certain extent beyond the system making? Yeah, I mean, usefulness is maybe a bit of a strange way to put it in the sense that um, it's, it, the intention is not necessarily to put kind of utilitarian value to what it is that we create, even though there's a lot of artists whose incentive, including mine, is a sort of the ideas to have impact or um, uh, some kind of effect. Um, but really more what role we play, you know, just even as global citizens in this context. Um, and, you know, are we complicit um, in, <laughs> in this kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, apocalyptic scenario that we find ourselves in as artists. You know, of course, there's, there's the work that we make, but there's also the kind of culture around the work that we make, the exhibitions, the biennales, the traveling, the residencies. Um, and, um, you know, do we, you know, um, the funding that, you know, there's, there's so many complex parts to being an artist. Um, you know, we're not just working hermits in our studios, completely disconnected from the world. We play a part in the world economy. And so I think um, for me, it was really about questioning all of that. So not just 
you know, what kind of impact does my, my, my individual work have, you know, who does it speak to, but just really what um, role do I play as an individual um, in, you know, in that kind of complex uh, infrastructure. But that's very clear. And because it also like in, it, it posed like a, a new level of responsibility, you know, often in crisis, there is this, this, I guess, element of deciding, you know, where, um, where the citizen, where the art, when, where the citizen, where the artist starts, where the citizen starts, what's, what's the whole level of responsibility that you have as part of a collective uh, uh, system, I think is an interesting, is an interesting question. Um, but I, I still wondering though about, cause you, you talk about impact and, and the fact that, you know, your work speak to somebody or has a name. Um, and, and the word impact is always like a, a word that is quite complicated, quite loaded. Um, so you work at, at the nexus between art, education, um, history, politics. Uh, so Somehow, how do you conceptualize all those elements in your work? And how do you conceptualize, you know, your role in all this? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've chosen to kind of go in that direction with my work. And that's just one of many ways and one of many strategies within kind of the art world. Um, and for me, it kind of... Um, I realized that I think my positioning um, as um, a woman from the global south, um, uh, that that in many ways the work that I do is, is actually a coping mechanism um, for myself, first and foremost. I'm dealing with issues um, that affect me greatly um, uh, based on uh, my identity, based on where I come from, based on where I'm currently living. Um, but then kind of more broadly trying to um, address these broader topics that involve many components um, and, and, uh, and kind of many different uh, perspectives. Um, I became kind of interested in, in how to kind of bring nuance forward um, to complicate political stories um, and uh, issues that are relevant to us today. And so, um, so that means, you know, approaching it from various, you know, directions. So that means, you know, uh, engaging in um, kind of educational formats. That means um, making my work, but attempting to kind of go beyond, um, you know, the art world or kind of the exhibition format. Uh, something that I'm, I'm very kind of attentive to and interested in is, um, intervening in the media sphere. And so this is where I've become kind of more interested in tactics of intervention and subversion is how do you, how do you kind of, um, cross those barriers, um, you know, that are often kind of defining you in certain ways, um, and, 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 and try to kind of push narratives in, in different directions. And, you know, sometimes they fail and sometimes they succeed enormously. Um, and, but for me, the point is to get narratives out there. And that's <clears throat> what I've become preoccupied with as an artist, I guess. So you, you talk about a little bit your, um, this urge, and, and working in in these in these various and multiple ways um, starts from from personal experience or starts from personal need. Uh, 
you Egyptian, you you been, you spend a lot of time in the U.S. Uh, now in Germany, uh, you travel all over the world. Um, but where this urge started from? I mean, I think it has a lot to do with living between cultures. Um, it has a lot to do with the education that um, I received, um, which really touches to this this kind of issue and this word we we um, addressed at the beginning of this idea of unlearning and relearning. Um, you know, I had a very Westernized education. I had a very, uh, I, I went to an American uh, school in Egypt and then proceeded to continue my higher education in, in America, in the United States. Um, and there was a lot of unlearning that I had to do um, with the dominant narratives that were taught to me. Um, and um, it wasn't really into my adulthood and into kind of deep into my research, uh, into my artistic practice that I was able to kind of um, research and dive into these narratives in ways that, you know, suddenly, you know, suddenly it was a sort of awakening. I mean, wait a minute. I mean, this is this is a very kind of one directional narrative that I've learned. Um, and I think in recent years with the digitization of a lot of historical um, documents and archives and access to information in general, it suddenly kind of opened up um, the ways in which those of us who come from particular regions are able to investigate um, historical material um, in ways that we weren't able to before, in ways that we didn't have access to, let's say, colonial archives that exist in Europe or archives that exist in our own countries um, because it's so difficult to get permissions to access those. And so I think the impetus for me really came from that I was educated in a, in a kind of particular, in a particular way that was at um, at a crossroads and at in conflict actually with my own history and um, my own identity and that somehow my artwork became a way for me to um, come to terms with that. I mean, um, I, I, I'm then able to kind of explore these two different sides and, and have an opinion about it because I, I know both of them so well. Uh, and so I think that's really for me what my work served the purpose it served really can you um can you give us an example of that you know there's there's one of those moments where this uh, uh critical gaze started rising where those contradiction or those apparent contradiction you know started to uh to manifest somehow I mean, I don't know that there was necessarily, I can pinpoint like singular moments because I think my awareness grew over time um, through my studies um, and through my art practice um, and, and kind of experiencing, um, on the one hand, experiencing politics as a Middle Easterner um, and, and, and kind of living in the countries that are um, imposing a certain politics. Um, and so I don't I don't know that I can I can pinpoint a particular um, moment in time, but just to give it an example um, from a research perspective, um, just the ways in which uh, researchers from the region um, often had difficulties accessing certain colonial archives. Um, you know, you have to get 
permissions to enter the physical space that is this archive, right? To, to, to kind of dig through. And oftentimes um, researchers from, you know, let's say, you know, let's say from Egypt, just to kind of speak to my own experience, would go to institutions abroad and ask for permissions and wouldn't be granted those permissions. So they wouldn't have access to their own historical narratives. Those narratives were controlled and there is a reason that they were controlled. And so I think now with the kind of opening of um, information on the internet um, and particularly the ways in which um, you know, um, institutions are opting to kind of open up their archives and digitize all their, their material for preservation. Um, now suddenly we have access to all this content that we never had access to um, because we don't have to go through that bureaucracy and get those permissions anymore. Um, and so in a way we're kind of learning our own history from scratch. Um, and, I, and I think this is a discovery that many artists from the region have made. Um, and and uh, and I think we're just at the beginning of that. Um, uh, and so uh, so so there's a relearning that has to happen from our own perspective, um, and especially those of us who come from the colonized world where we've been kind of indoctrinated with these very particular narratives of our colonizers. Um, and now we're unlearning that and relearning the histories um, that speak to us. And so um, I think artists are kind of at the forefront of really kind of putting that forward um, into kind of a mass discourse, basically. You know, it's interesting that I hear you saying almost that part of this urge starts from this contradiction, this clash of narratives that are still part of you, but somehow they don't add to each other if you keep, if you don't exercise a critical gaze about what, what is happening. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot that you said that, that I found it extremely, extremely interesting. But the first thing that I want to ask though, because um, you use now, uh, you know, subversion, intervention, and learning. Somehow they are all words that uh, presuppose a, an idea of a power or potentially of a center, of a system, you know. Um, to, to a certain extent, uh, you know, I almost come almost like a, a Foucaultian idea of the world where there is a clear power and there is, and then there are, you know, you can choose to subvert the, the already, the, the existing system or not. Is it, is it like that? And if, if so, what is the power that you try to subvert? Well, I mean, initially one might think that, um, you know, I'm approaching it from this perspective of having had a Western education and living in the Western world in, in the United States and in Europe. Um, and so basically I'm fighting these dominant narratives that have an impact on where I come from, basically, um, that are narratives that I mean, even have very tangible impacts on foreign policy and, and, and politics. Um, but when I when I started to kind of dig into a lot of these historical narratives, I discovered that in fact we ourselves in the region also don't know these narratives. Um, these these a lot of these narratives have been erased from our own histories. We we aren't as um, well versed in our own history <laughs> as we are in Western histories, um, and so. Uh, and 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 this is a, a transformation that's been happening for a very long time now in the education systems, um, you know, across the world. I would say, um, and so uh, 
so, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know where, um, I mean, I guess the, the place that I position myself is that I have an understanding that I'm neither part of this nor that. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhere in between. Uh, I'm not comfortable in either of those cultures. And yet I have something to say about both of them. And that's really an advantage, I think, that I have, um, especially as an artist, to speak to um, these different perspectives and, and to kind of force people to question them um, in ways that maybe they haven't had, haven't been privy to, they haven't had the opportunity um, to see these other, other perspectives. So, but I, you know, I really pick these narratives that are quite difficult and heavy and um, not easy to kind of discuss in, in, um, in, you know, mass media and I'm often drawn to them because of this media perspective. I'm often drawn to them because I see the ways in which media doesn't have the ability to bring nuance forward and 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 basically you know when we're talking about contemporary conflicts um, you know the ways in which you know media just kind of um, you puts forward this very one dimensional narrative which of course any conflict does not has multiple sides right. Um, and so I think for me that, um, you know, in this age of social media and, and, and the ways in which we're constantly being bombarded by narratives, um, I'm drawn to the ones that I feel like I can, you know, uh, you know, add uh, more, you know, content to add more nuance to it, um, complicate them, um, try to try to um, provide a more of a historical, more robust historical context in which we can understand what these moments of crisis that we're living today are, um, because they're often, uh, you know, put forward by the media in a sort of void. Um, you know, as if they don't, you know, come from historical context. So that really is my interest um, as an artist. But in your work, because something that is interesting, in your work, you move a lot between uh, history and contemporaneity, and then you figure out ways to kind of make everything relevant. Um, so I'm still wondering, well, first of all, if you can give us um, one example of, of, of this practice. Uh, the, every time we chat, I'm always fascinated by some new historical facts that you come up. And I remember once we were together and you were telling me that you were investigating about a pyramid built by the Nazis in Egypt. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what pyramid? <laughs> you know? and, and, as, and like this one, you have so many different uh, uh, elements, uh, you know, historical elements that you managed to dig out and then reconsider. Can you tell us maybe one example and how you approach them? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, I'm very drawn to quirky stories, and um, I think that's maybe what sets me apart as an as an artist is the way that I narrate stories and what I'm drawn to. It reveals a bit of my personality, I guess. Um, but um, but in fact, I use these. Um, I'm interested in in kind of using these quirky stories as allegories, and and especially, you know, I said a little bit earlier this idea that I'm interested in complicating very complicated narratives, right? I'm, I'm interested in like, how do we dive in and really have a discussion about narratives that are often very polarized and often very difficult to have um, a kind of productive discourse about. And so this idea of, and maybe, you know, one of the strategies that I use as this form of intervention and subversion is humor. 
Um, and that's something that I'm increasingly conscious of that, um, you know, um, hopefully, um, you know, uh, my work gets funnier and funnier <laughs> as I make more work. But, but the idea is that I try to find um, these kind of hooks um, as an entry point into um, a, a kind of complicated historical narrative. Um, so, you know, one good example is a very, I mean, and, and most, most of my work is, is years and years of research that I'm kind of accumulating data and images and um, reading material and historical documents. And what my role as an artist then becomes is how to piece those things together um, and present them in a way that's not just about putting documents forward, but that it's a way that I've kind of embodied them. I've, you know, um, digested them and put them back out in a way that might be different and might, you know, force uh, or might cause people to, to see it differently. Um, and so, I mean, I have multiple projects like this, but, um, but, you know, one good example, and, and because it's kind of a, a, a work that's at the forefront of my mind, I just launched a book about it, um, is about a, um, a stork that was um, captured in Egypt in 2013 and accused of being a Zionist spy. And because it had an um, electronic device attached to its body. And, um, you know, this story was you know, fascinating. And it went viral in the media. And I often kind of go after these viral stories, um, but I'm much more interested, not necessarily about the story itself, but this phenomenon on, of why, you know, something like that piques people's interest. Why do all these international media, um, you know, outlets feel the need to write about the stork that was captured and accused of espionage? I mean, there's a reason that's interesting, but, but often it ends there, right? And so I became interested in, well, but what are the conditions of paranoia that would cause a bird to be accused of being, uh, 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 accused of being a spy? Um, and, you know, in the process of investigating that, I unfold this entire narrative that actually becomes about drone warfare and the kind of aerial surveillance of the region and how kind of the quartering of the Middle East under colonialism. And it's all through this bird eye perspective and this idea that, you know, not trusting and, and being a bit skeptical of anything in the sky actually comes from somewhere. Um, and so we begin to understand then people's behavior in a contemporary context that it's linked to almost over a hundred years of, you know, an infrastructure that's being built under this kind of hierarchy, under violence, under colonialism, under imperialism. Um, and, and that then becomes a way to explain all of that. It, it becomes an entry into um, understanding that better. You know, when you, when you, talk about this, uh, you know, I was keep thinking about this word of impact uh, that is that is somehow connected to, again, to the to the question, you know, what, what's the point of it all? Uh, in a sense that obviously I hear a lot of elements of uh, criticality or reconsidering or unlearning, but the artistic practice, you know, you could do it in, in various ways. You know, you choose the artistic practice to do so. Uh, why is that? What do you think is, what do you think art allow you to do that other practice wouldn't allow you to do? I think that's a really great question because I think art has this ability through kind of an aesthetic understanding, through a, a, a narrative construction to draw people in in personal ways. 
Um, putting forward an art exhibition about this topic is a very different thing than writing an academic text about it, which I also do and I think is also important. Um, but they function in very different ways and they reach people in very different ways. And so, you know, one thing that I'm very conscious of is that people can come into, you know, one of my exhibitions and, and, and enjoy my work on a purely aesthetic level. Um, but my hope is that I can reach them in, on other, other levels as well and kind of force them to ask questions that maybe otherwise they wouldn't have asked. But already reacting to kind of the, the aesthetic um, aspect is, is already something. Um, but, you know, I'm also um, conscious of the ways in which art practice and, and art um, allows you to get away with things that um, you wouldn't in other fields. Um, so for example, the way that I conduct my research and only, only now, I mean, even though artists have been, have had kind of these research practice-based um, approaches for decades mm -hmm. and only now is it really coming, are, are people really coming to terms with it? And is it really being addressed, especially in academia as a legitimate practice of research that in fact, artists actually provide knowledge production um, they're not only reflecting. Um, and so, so one of the things that art allows you to do, and for me, really, my research is driven very much by, by visuals, um, but I'm doing legitimate research. And, and so one thing that it allows me to do is kind of step away from these very rigid, uh, rigid kind of rules that the academy has put forward with how research is to be conducted. And it's not to say that that's necessarily wrong because we do need that scientific rigor, but it kind of opens up the possibility for accessing different things that maybe such a strict format doesn't allow. But then the other thing too, is that, um, you know, coming from, you know, Egypt and, and, and countries that are similar where it's, it's risky and it's actually dangerous um, to talk about politics, you know, to be open about your opinion <laughs> about um, history and politics. Somehow, in many ways, art goes under the radar. It, it's somehow allowed within the art world. There's a way in which you can nurture a discussion around politics that you can't in media as a journalist, or you can't as a human rights lawyer, or you can't, you know, as a professor. Um, and so, so it provides this other space that until now um, is, is okay to kind of express some of these things. And then lastly, I think it's also just that it's um, pretty open to format. So I can, you know, do a physical exhibition. I can do a film that's screened in a cinema. I can do a performative intervention in public space. Um, and I've become increasingly interested in how to kind of break out of, you know, the gallery walls, how to break into these other, um, these other systems, into academia, into media, into, you know, these other spaces um, and, and kind of instigate a discussion that way. So I think what I'm finding is the power of, of being an artist um, is that I just have a lot of flexibility um, and, um, and that's allowing me to explore these things in ways that I wouldn't in, in other fields. You are also an educator though. And, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm quite interested to, ex to explore that, uh, that space in between art and education. Uh, I mean, in your practice as an artist and your practice as an educator, because in your practice, I hear 
a lot of things that if we remove the art uh, aspect of it and we and that we, we would just extract it, uh, we extract some essentials that, that, that came out today are funny enough uh, would be in the ranking of uh, 21st century skills uh, from for any corporation in the planet. But it's quite funny, you know, is it's basically is creative doing and capacity to, to, to think creatively, problem solving, it's about critical thinking and expressing critical gaze. It's about um, a change-making attitude and being, you know, aware uh, that uh, uh, that you can create certain change in the world and or in the environment that surrounds you. It's about responsibility. It's about self-awareness. It's about knowledge. So all those skills are skills that when you attract that you can see that in a rank of the World Economic Forums where to say like, this is what the world needs <laughs> or like UNESCO, this is what the world needs. But somehow these things remain often hidden and, and, and they're separated. Oh, you're an artist. Okay, you, you, know, you, you live in a different planet. I'm glad that you exist, but you know, nothing more than that. But you that are able to explore that space in between art and education. How do you interpret that? How do you think that you can transfer some of those uh, uh, learning and experiences in building new skills in your students? Well, you know, I come from one of those countries where if you're not a doctor or an engineer, you're a complete failure. <laughs> but only to discover that, in fact, the world in general has this outlook and this idea that um, um, in, in a capitalist society, if you're not making a ton of money, then you're doing something wrong. Um, and I think art, um, there are certainly artists who are making uh, a lot of money. Um, but um, for, that's, for me, that's not my goal. And, and I think there are some actually really important skills that we learn as artists. Um, and it's something that is um, very much needed um, in our contemporary context. Um, I think the ways in which universities are increasingly becoming more like businesses um, and the ways in which um, we're increasingly becoming um, censored in societies around the world, um, critical thinking is a skill that not many people have anymore. And, and it's a skill that it needs to be learned and taught. Um, and this is something that um, you learn in art school. Um, uh, and so I think as an educator, and again, I think I approach, you know, I, 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 I don't think I have a very clear um, place where I exist, you know, whether it's ac academia or the art world or politics or whatever, people often have a hard time placing me. And I think it comes from this experience that I had growing up of not being part of any one culture, having a, 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 an education that is at conflict with uh, my culture and living between geographies. And so I just became very accustomed kind of from being an outsider in every context that I'm involved in. Um, and so I think I, I discovered that my strength is the clarity that I have in, in being able to relay that as an educator um, um, and the tools that I think are valuable um, coming from um, a, creative, a creative practice 
um, and, and how we desperately need that um, today. And especially in dealing with um, a, a world that's leaning towards a sort of <laughs> in a fascist direction, um, uh, a world that's becoming more oppressed and um, um, and and tools that are that are being used against us in, in quite horrific ways, and our um, in a way our um, helplessness in combating those, um, and it really comes from the fact that we're unable to question them in the first place, and so um, so so I, I don't know I see I see this as something. Um, you know, I always joke around about radicalizing my students, you know, this idea that like we can't be comfortable in the situations that we're living in. We constantly have to be questioning them and we constantly have to be provoking and we constantly have to be taking risks um, as artists because we also come from these positions of privilege if these are the fields that we're pursuing. Um, and so, um, and so I, I think, uh, I think it's a legitimate thing to ask of artists, um, or, uh, at least to ask of artists who are learning to be art or students who are learning to be artists. No, when, when you, when you speak, it, it comes to mind a little bit what, um, Bell Hooks was saying and wrote in his book, you know, education as a practice of freedom. And, uh, and it's, and, and basically the way you describe it is somehow ingrained in this, uh, in this idea, I think. Um, I, I have to ask you something, uh, and, and it's about, because at some point you say, you talk about technology and, and you were using the idea of technology as you were mentioning because you were saying it opens up new possibilities that allow your practice to flourish. You know, besides your practice, is allow you to start interrogate uh, yourself and interrogate the narratives that they were presented to you. And and without that, it would have been you know virtually impossible. At the same time, we often discuss, and you often spoke in your work about um, the fascist side of technology, uh, and we always laugh about this word, technofascism. That's uh, a good word. <laughs> yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But it, it speak about this, the, the ambivalent nature of, uh, of, uh, of technology. Um, how do you, if you reconcile the two, the two ideas and where is the balance? And, and, and on top of that, where do you place yourself? In, in, you know, in respect to that. Yeah. I'm going to throw another word at you that I really like, which is digital authoritarianism. Oh, I like that. I think it's uh, similar to technofascism. Okay. Uh, and that's this idea that, of course, technology is a double-edged sword. Um, it has a lot of um, emancipatory capabilities, absolutely, and has advanced us in, in many ways that I think are positive. Um, but as well as negative, but but we have to have the capacity to be able to question those things and play a role in how those things are structured. I mean, I think technology, it's hard to talk about technology, you know, as this kind of umbrella thing, because there's so many directions, but um, but but we cannot also extract the ways in which a lot of advancements in technologies are often developed in a military context. And as such, um, and, and we often see technology as this kind of um, 
you know, uh, a system that kind of exists on its own and is somehow autonomous and uh, makes decisions through algorithms and, and things like that. But, but, um, but we need to somehow reconnect the ways and the context in which those technologies are developed and then how these systems of power and hierarchy are being inscribed into them. And so this is in fact something that I'm very preoccupied about in my own work. And this is what drives a lot of my historical research is looking at where the, um, the gazes of power are inscribed into technology. So for example, you know, looking at the history of photography and the ways in which photography was being used to put forward very particular ideological agendas. And, and my role as an artist is always questioning, using these tools, can we in fact extract them you know, extract those narratives out of them today? Or am I still kind of imposing those same that same colonial gaze by using the tool that was, you know, constructed in that context? And so that's something that I'm very much interested in, in, in questioning. And I think it has really come to the forefront, especially now during the, the pandemic, during the corona pandemic, um, because we've become obviously so dependent on technology. You and I are having this video chat um, online. Um, and ultimately, we need to question, yeah, but who is who owns these things? Um, who has the power to censor us if we say the wrong thing? Um, who has the power to eliminate, you know, uh, uh, these, these platforms if, you know, something doesn't go according to how they want it to go, right? Um, and these also have, these are political economies, they have political agency. Um, and so these are all things that we need to understand as we become increasingly dependent on them. They're not neutral by any means, um, politically, um, they're not neutral. And so, um, on the one hand, I, I acknowledge my own dependency on them um, and the importance that we're able to have this conversation online, um, but without being a little hesitant and a little critical of, in fact, you know, what is the platform that we're using and what what agenda, what ideological agenda do they have at this time? Um, and so I think that's something that we're not really accustomed to questioning uh, so often. Um, because we don't really know how these systems are built um, and we don't really know where materials are mined and we don't really know who's actually digging, you know, the minerals that make our phones and our batteries and, you know, all these things. We don't like trace it to, um, to where it, it um, um, uh, to where it begins. And, and, and by not questioning it, we're giving up uh, basically any power in having an opinion about it. And so um, so this is something that I'm interested in always raising in my work is forcing people to actually question the, the tools that they're using on a daily basis and how they then become complicit in these politics that we're attempting to critique. And that's probably now there's even like a, a, a tighter connection of this in the sense that um, compared to a few years ago when you had a tool, a media, and or uh, you know, any other technological tool that has a clear center. And then from the clear center, there is, a, there is a clear ideology behind it. And then you can decide between this and that, or that to that. Now with technology, the way it is built now with social media and so on and so forth, there is somehow an algorithm that speak to you that, and the conversation now, the, the complexity of a system that is diffuse 
and goes into transforming the reality that each individual at the personal level is able to process and is able to create to the point that actually this is not only a method of access to information, it goes to changing our biology. Uh, that makes everything even more uh, complex to face. And in a way, some of the features that you were telling us about in terms of, again, criticality um, and, and capacity to build a critical gaze become even more important. Uh, but it becomes yeah. even more and more difficult to, to exercise because if we don't have a base of what reality is, or common knowledge and a common understanding of what reality is or what real and not real is, then it becomes quite tricky. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We can't purport to be free societies and then give up our agency and decision-making um, and kind of perpetuate these very, very um, problematic systems of exploitation that's happening elsewhere, you know? Or um, you know, in or, or destroying our environment and our and and um, uh, speeding climate climate change. Um, so I think I think we're really at a crossroads, and I think this is something that younger generations are starting to to understand because their future is at stake, and it's becoming very very visible. And and so again, I think one of the few places in which um, we're really able to kind of uh, uh, dive into that and 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 kind of you know, break that apart and, and really question those things is in art schools, um, which essentially is kind of how, you know, art that, you know, it, it is the purpose of art schools in, in many ways, but it's, it's proving to be increasingly important, especially because um, universities are going away from that kind of critical thinking approach. Um, and, and merely because it's so tied into um, capitalistic and a political, um, you know, uh, system. Uh, and so what can we as educators in the art world do to, you know, educate young people um, <clears throat> to kind of spread this, this um, you know, this approach to, to society, basically? So somebody's listening and uh, want to embrace your three words, Sub subverting, subversion, intervention, and unlearning, learning, and relearning. Where should I start from? You mean in terms of, what do you mean? If I want to embrace this three, this three action. Yeah. Is there like, is there an action that comes before? Is there an advice that you give? Is there an attitude? Is there a practice? Mm -hmm. what, is, what is there before I decide to delve into, into these three concepts? Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, the, the road is being paved for us already, where we, we find ourselves right now at a crossroads that is not sustainable. Um, and um, the crisis of this moment is becoming ever more clear. Um, and so I think that already, um, and uh, presumably a lot of people are interested in changing the way that it's changing the status quo. It's clear that what has been kind of um, transpiring for decades is not 
is not going in a good direction, let's be honest. <laughs> and so, um, and so I think it's, it's a, um, a willingness to change, but I think for many people, it's a matter of survival. Um, and so if it's a matter of survival, then we need to kind of urgently come up with new skills that allow us to survive and, um, and, uh, and allow us to perpetuate that change. And I think it's a time where we have to take risks. Um, unfortunately, that's, we're, it's, 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 we're not in a comfortable place. We have to take risks. And especially those of us who um, are more privileged and are in a position of comfort um, should be at the forefront of that. Um, and, um, and, you know, I guess my proposal is that perhaps art is one way to do that. Um, um, and not necessarily because I think, you know, artists are almighty or anything like that. Um, but it's just a matter of, of creating a, a, a different perspective and a different way of living because ultimately, um, I think, you know, art is not just about creating objects. It's, you know, it's, at least for me, it's, it's really a way of thinking. It's a way of embodying. It's a way of living. It's a, you know, it's, it's the lifestyle that I choose. It's the way that I choose to engage with the world. And ultimately I'm an artist a hundred percent of the time, not just when I work and then shut that down. Right. So there's a way in which I choose to engage with the world. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know, perhaps, perhaps, um, somehow that can, um, people can learn something from that. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to say it without it sounding like something arrogant because that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say that it's clear that we need to shift the way that we think and the way that we engage with society. And art is the tool, was one of the tools. It's one, it can be one of the tools, or at least it's a space where people are attempting to do that as opposed to many spaces where people are unable to do that, don't even have the option to do that. Um, and so, so I think that's something. Very clear. Eva, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to our new podcast, Creativity Pioneers. If you'd like to check out other episodes and know more about our mission, please visit moleskinfoundation.org. Keep on following this podcast and share your comments on Facebook and Instagram at Moleskine Foundation. Until next time, stay creative.